morning, everybody. Last week, uh, we began to talk a little bit about um, a new start as a church transitioning up um, from Elam to Highland Community Church and uh, starting a new season of ministry. What's that look like? And what are some things that as a church um, need to be embraced and need to be considered and need to be planned for? Um, those are some of the things we talked about. We talked about what does a successful start, a successful ministry look like. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, which is what we looked at, to a church that had a really warped view of success. He also wrote to a church that was far from stable. They were all over the map. Uh, they were getting influenced by the culture around them. Uh, they were having problems from within and they were far from a stable church. It's one thing to start well. It's another thing to remain faithful and stable in life and in ministry. And we want to talk about that this morning. Chapter 4 is where we're going to kind of spend most of the time in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, but I think this is a significant time to talk about this in more ways than one. Obviously the transitional piece of it. But also 2 Timothy 3 says, in the last days, there's going to be difficult times. It'll be difficult days, tumultuous days, hard days, days when the culture really cranks up the heat, when behavior's all over the map, when there are no morals, or those who say they have morals live as if there were none. There's going to be difficult days, and in the midst of those difficult days, God's going to use ministries that are stable and faithful. It is a significant issue. That's why Paul addresses some of the things he does. So let's zoom in on what it really looks like to have a ministry of stability and being faithful to God's call. Let's start, first of all, 2 Corinthians. We'll start in verse 18 before we get into chapter 4 here. Paul says, And we all, with all unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, a stable ministry, a ministry that's being faithful, believe it or not, will regularly experience change. I'll use, and I don't mean changing truth, I mean changing transformation, becoming more like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, with unfailed faces. And Paul goes even more into say, In verse 18 is loaded. He says, first of all, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of God. There's a sense of contemplation, reflecting upon Christ. It's exalting Him. It's thinking deeply about the Savior. It's it's really obeying what John the Baptist said when he said, behold the Lamb of God. And the word behold is an ongoing event. It's not a one-time thing. We look at Jesus and say, hey, looking good. No, it's beholding Him forever, every day, every moment. And so it starts with beholding, but Paul goes on to say it then enters this area of really reflecting on who he is so his life is reproduced in us. We become, if I could, reflectors of his glory. We reflect to those around us the reality of Christ within us. Which ultimately, with the contemplation, the beholding, and the reflection, ultimately we experience real transformation, real change. A stable ministry, a ministry that's being faithful, will regularly see transformation in lives. 
so that as this church right here meets up on a hill in a Highland Community Church one year from today, you should be able to look around and say, we're not the same we were a year ago. We look a little more like Jesus, personally and corporately. Our community is seeing a love that's, that's really grown, as seeing a faithfulness and a, and a winsomeness in the, the way we live out the gospel that wasn't there a year ago, or not to the degree it is. A stable ministry changes. There's transformation. And as we behold, we're changed. Metamorphosis is the Greek word. It's the same word used in Matthew 17 where it says Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. You see, God does this work of change. And he does it within our hearts. And it reveals itself on the outside. Not the other way around. We don't start on the outside and try to clean up the inside. And so Paul says, listen, as we behold and we reflect, we're changed, we're transformed. In light of that, chapter 4, therefore. Whenever you see therefore, as I've said before, ask, what's it there for? (laughs) What's it there for is what verse 18 just got talking about. In light of the fact there's transformation, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because we've beheld Christ, we've reflected on him, and he's transforming us. And so no matter how hard it gets, we don't lose heart because he's working. And that's the beautiful thing about what he's trying to say. In light of the fact we're beholding Christ, we reflect upon it. Through God's mercy, we have this ministry. It's without veils. We don't need need to lose heart. We won't quit. And stability and perseverance go hand in hand because the work of the Spirit is changing us. It starts within, and it's a process. I'm reading a book, and... Man, I really love this quote. It's, it's by a pastor. I have no idea who he is, uh, J.D. Greer, but I really like what he writes. He says, in an awakening, the Spirit of God does not typically do a new thing. He simply pours greater power upon the normal things faithful Christians are already doing. Prayer becomes more intense, worship becomes more joyous, repentance becomes more sorrowful, and the preached word yields greater effect. The Spirit of God multiplies the effectiveness of what we would call normal work of seed planting, bringing a bountiful harvest, and He does more in a moment than we could accomplish in a lifetime. I really like that. Everyone's looking for a new thing. Well, God's given us His thing. His word, and when we're faithful to that, that's where stability comes. And according to this author, and I would occur, we don't need a new thing. We just need what we're supposed to be doing empowered by the Spirit of God. That's what we need. And that's where stability comes from. That's where a faithful ministry begins to get real cleats in the, in the, the turf of where we serve and live. A stable ministry also is committed to removing obstacles. Look what Paul says. Verse 2. But we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But we have is a declaration. Paul says, I declare to you we've done some things. We've renounced 
secret and shameful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. And renounce means to separate yourself from either a person or an object. Paul's saying we've renounced, we've separated ourselves from disgraceful and underhanded ways. Again, it's that idea of secret, shameful. Paul's saying it's, it's not who we are. We, we've removed this obstacle. It's not an obstacle between us and communicating the gospel. And as you hear it from us, you don't need to worry, Paul says, there's not between us these secret, shameful ways. Paul says we've laid it out plainly. And we've removed this one obstacle. He says it's not the only obstacles removed. You see, a ministry built on secret and sinful ways is very unstable and will be a hindrance to the gospel. He goes on to say, but, and we also refuse to practice cunning ways. It's this idea of, actually the word has the idea of human cleverness, genius. And also carries this idea of deception. So it's a loaded word. And Paul says, listen, I refuse to be clever. I refuse to try to use cleverness in the communication of the gospel. No tricks, no gimmicks. gimmicks. I'm not going to traffic into enemy territory where there's deception. It's interesting word choice he uses. He says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. That word cunning is interesting Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty, cunning, than all the other animals. Genesis 3.13, Eve said, The serpent deceived me. It's the idea of cunning. 2 Corinthians 2.10-11, Paul cautioned the church that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. So it has this idea of Paul saying, We remove the obstacle of human cleverness. We also remove the obstacle of cunning a Satan-infiltrated ways. We've removed that obstacle. We're not coming to you with deceptive ways. We're not trying to trick you or come with gimmicks. And to use deception is to act in a way which patterns after Satan. Because there is an enemy seeking to destroy your life, seeking to destroy church ministries, and he's constantly placing obstacles in front of you and I to keep us from sharing the gospel and to living it out. Don't be an obstacle from the gospel being clearly shared to those around you. We are in the process of selling our house, as Keith said, and, 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 and one of the challenges is you're living in the house, but you don't want it to get too dirty. You ever sell a house? And so you're trying to always keep it clean because you don't want people to come in and see the dirt or see the, uh, the carelessness and to, and to see obstacles to them buying it. You're trying to re- remove obstacles is really what you're trying to do. Because a dirty house is not attractive. And you know where I'm going with this one. A dirty mouth, a dirty mind, dirty behavior is not attractive to those who are unsaved people. You and I personally and corporately need to remove obstacles so people can clearly see the gospel of Jesus Christ and their need for it. Too much, i got to be honest, there's too much pressure. I I put too much pressure on myself over the years to, to just say it right or to package it in a new, clever way so people could hear the gospel and go, oh, wow, that's right, never heard of it that way. But this doesn't need any help. 
When the gospel is clear, we just need to remove obstacles, and one of them is cleverness and deceptive ways. Don't allow this to become an obstacle. So Paul says, but there's another thing we don't do because it would become an obstacle. We don't tamper with the Word of God. We don't distort it. There's a refusal, Paul says, to mishandle Scripture. And he takes great pains to make sure the truth is presented. So he says, we lay it out plainly. So you could see the truth plainly. Because distortion is another weapon of the enemy. Our feelings, to be honest, our feelings, our thoughts, they don't really matter if they're in opposition to God's truth. And you know as well as I do, we live in a culture where God's Word is here, or at least it was, and human opinion was here. And then all of a sudden, I don't want to be offended. And that, that truth offends me. So let's repackage it a little bit so it's not quite as offensive. Well, I don't think God really meant wrath. And I don't think there could really be a hell because that seems really mean. That doesn't seem fair. Or the culture around me says this is okay and that's okay, so it must be okay. Or that really is offensive to me. That really seems like it hurts my feelings, and because it hurts my feelings, it can't be true. And you see what's going on. Pretty soon, culture's opinion, culture's quote-unquote wisdom, begins to pass up the authority of Scripture. And it comes to the point that we're like, I know the Bible says this, but this behavior is acceptable out there in the marketplace. And I know the Bible says this, but surely, if I say stuff like that, wow, people will be offended. And it's happening all over the United States, and pastors and churches and individual Christians all are at a place now where they need to say, either it's true, or I'm just going to have to forsake it and align myself up with the culture. And if you do that, don't think for a moment you're pleasing God. I mean, you can try all the linguistic uh, calisthenics you want. But if you're not following this book, this truth, you've begun to compromise. And you're in a dangerous place. A stable ministry is one founded and based on the Word of God unapologetically. And God's truth is a sure foundation. No matter what the culture may say, no matter what the media may say, stand on the Word of God, not the cultural voices. About a week ago, there was a democratic debate. And it was criticized for being low energy. But one commercial that reappeared several times seemed to keep viewers entertained. This is the Freedom From Religion Foundation ran an advertisement featuring Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan's son, who is proudly declaring, not Ronald Reagan, the president, this is his son, proudly declared that he's not afraid to burn in hell. Here's the commercial. Hi, I'm Ron Reagan. I'm an unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusion of religion into our secular government, Reagan says in the opening of the advertisement. That's why I'm asking you to support the Freedom From Religion Foundation, the nation's largest and most effective association of atheists and agnostics working to keep state and church separate, just like our founding fathers intended. What a liar. Anyway, please support the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He concludes the advertisement by saying, Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. 
Mr. Reagan, you should be. Not because I say there's a hell, not because we took a poll and the majority said there's a hell, because God says there's hell and he wasn't stuttering. You should be afraid. And just because you say you're not doesn't change the truth. Matter of fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so you just indicted yourself and called yourself a fool. So, out of the words of a fool comes this statement. Some people, well, God didn't really mean fear, did he? Maybe he just meant respect. We're not supposed to fear God, really. We're supposed to just maybe respect him. No, fear. Our God is a holy God. He's a, he's, he's a God of wrath. He's a God of power. Yeah, you should fear God in that sense. He wasn't playing around with words. He intentionally chose that word. And so as we think about standing upon the good news of the gospel, which is found in the word of God, so we stand on the word, but Paul does something. This is amazing teaching to me. Verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now I want you to see what he's done. We're going to put verses 4 and 6 on top of each other and let them illuminate each other. Okay, hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you. If not, grab one. Okay, let's lay out these phrases of verse 4 and 6. So the light in verse 4 corresponds to the light in verse 6. Okay, he mentions it twice. Of the gospel in verse 4 corresponds to of the knowledge in verse 6. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang on. Of the glory of Christ in verse 4, corresponds to of the glory of God, in verse 6. And who is the image of God, in verse 4, corresponds to in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's your point? Here's what I see. The content of the gospel here is called the glory of Christ. You see that in verse 4. The gospel of the glory of Christ. So if you ask me what's the good news, I'd say, well, it's the glory of Jesus. That's the good news. It says so, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, if you're stumbling over the word glory, just think how we use it in other contexts. Like in sports, that was a moment of glory. You know, what, what, what are we saying right there? We kind of have an idea what we mean. It's a moment of awe. It was a great moment is how we use it. But when the Bible uses glory, it speaks of beauty. It speaks of wonder speaks of awe. So if you prefer the word beauty because it's less religious, that's fine. Use the word beauty. The gospel is the beauty of Christ. It's the glory of Christ. It's the magnificence of Christ. That's why we don't distort it. That's why we don't mess with the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. This gospel message is the glory of Christ. It's the beauty of Christ. It's the awe of the love of God. We don't mess with it. Because it's a beautiful thing. Now the question is, when you drop down and do the parallel in verse 6, it says the glory of God instead of the glory of Christ. Question, is that a different glory? No, it's not. And the way you know it's not is because as, Paul, as soon as Paul says in verse 4, the glory of Christ, he qualifies it with who is the image of God. And as soon as he says in verse 6, 
the glory of God, he says, in the face of Christ. So what he's doing is he's saying we're dealing with one glory here, one divine, magnificent glory, and it streams out of the radiance of the beauty of God in the events called the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. And glory is streaming out of that. It's the beauty of God. It's the beauty of Christ. And it's streaming out from that. That's why we don't distort the Word of God. That's why we don't mess with the Gospel. It's a beautiful thing. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your sins. There was absolutely nothing you could do or do to change that situation. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It's the beautiful magnificence of the gospel. The gospel is the beauty of Christ. The gospel is the magnificence of Christ. But look at the situation. The gospel's veiled. That's why we remove obstacles. It's veiled by hidden sin, deception, distortion. This world can't see the message. It's why we need to get obstacles out of the way. Because ultimately, there's a God of this age that's blinded them. We don't want to add to this confusion. Our ministry sets forth the truth plainly, Paul says, and if there are obstacles, we didn't put them there. It's solely the work of the enemy is what he's saying. Paul's saying, listen, if I can have Jesus, I don't need anything else. But for those who say, I need something else, i got to have something else, Paul's saying they're blinded. They're blinded to the magnificence and beauty of the gospel. And there are so many popular ways in which the obstacles appear. I mean, there's hypocrisy, there's a watering down of the gospel, there's unethical business dealings, there's lying, taking advantage of others, there's twisting scripture to accommodate our theology. I've met many who love and embrace their favorite system of theology more than they even do want to talk about biblical theology. I mean, we can even use things like that. And it becomes an obstacle. Understand, not everybody will believe. It's true. God ha- or the God of this age has blinded people. He's taken people captive to the world of illusion. They're not going to respond to the truth because they're blinded. An example, some years ago, we have a family, a, a, a family who was friends to our family growing up. And, and one of the sons... I, I would hang around with. They lived in Michigan, but when we, we hooked up, I'd hang around with them. And we just, great guy. We'd do a lot of different things together. Um, but once we got in high school, we just didn't see him as much. We didn't live geographically close enough to do things. Um, they wound up moving back closer to us, so we got to see him a little bit more. Uh, he, this, this, this friend of mine, he got into the party scene pretty heavy. And one night, unfortunately, he was driving home drunk, and he, and he killed himself in a very gruesome accident. Um, died driving drunk. At his funeral, I was stunned when we were by the casket and and I was sharing with the family and talking with them a little bit. And and his sister, who's right there, the sister of of the boy who drove and killed himself drinking, the sister says as she stands there, I just can't handle this. I need to go to the bar and get some get some alcohol. I'm like, hello? That's your brother. He just died from drinking and driving. And you're going to go to the bar? Hello. 
she couldn't make the connection. Because she didn't want to face the death of her brother. She was blinded to the reality of the situation. And so we need to be careful, first of all, when we take the gospel out to remove obstacles because it's a beauty and magnificence of Christ. We also understand it's a spiritual battle going on. There's an enemy who's blinded people. We need to pray their hearts would be open, their eyes would be open. There's ways to do that. I, I came across an article Traits of churches that will impact the future. And, and one of the traits of churches that will impact the future, according to this article, is that they're not afraid of questions. They'll allow unsaved people to come in and have a dynamic where they can ask their questions and wrestle with truth. Because they can present the truth plainly and allow people to ask questions. I like that. I think that, that's how we help people come to see the beauty and magnificence of the gospel. Is allow them to wrestle with some things. And some might not believe. Some might, you might explain the gospel crystal clear. And they might up and leave. It's true. But at least as a church, we know we've removed obstacles. We've done everything we can so people could see the beauty and magnificence of Jesus. And so a church that's stable is going to remove obstacles so people can see the gospel. A church that's stable is also going to understand that church's purpose and the individual Christian's life. We see that in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, who said, let light shine in our darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power, it belongs to God, not to us. And so Paul says, we understand our purpose, but we also understand our part. And so let's first of all talk about the purpose. He states it very clearly. To proclaim and exalt Jesus Christ as Lord. Not one of many ways. Not one of many lords. Not just simply a good teacher. We're here to proclaim Jesus Christ as as Lord, ultimate authority, as the one true king, Lord of lords. Paul says that's our purpose. It's not to preach ourselves. It's deliberately avoiding that. When the light gets turned on, they seek to get out of the light. Must be a time that we leave the vanity for victory of, being, of a Christ-honoring life. You see, God's pleasure abounds towards inadequate servants who reject self-boasting. Paul says our purpose, it's not to preach ourselves. That's not what we're about. It's to lift up Christ as Lord. That's the second characteristic of it. it. Paul says we're more concerned about defending the name of Christ than our own. Our life is oriented around him, his lordship. Paul says our music, our ministry, Everything orients around him. And as a church, there's the challenge. It's our ministry, our music, our strategies, individual in our lives, there are our decisions, are our standards. Do they orient around the lordship of Christ and do they lift it up? Important question. There's a third characteristic of this purpose. Not only do we not preach ourselves, Paul says, not only do we lift up Christ as Lord, we view ourselves a certain way as a servant. 
Many are good at saying Jesus is Lord, not so good at being a servant. That can be hard to hear, huh? It's easy to say he's Lord, but it's hard to serve sometimes. we got our own agendas. And then a fourth characteristic of that is gives God the glory. We view ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake, for his glory. And whatever calling you will carry a light in your heart like a miner's hat that points others to Christ for his glory. That's a model of a stable ministry. That's an impacting ministry. That's a ministry that gets its purpose. And you and I, as we go out every day, we must be putting on the life of Jesus on display because that's our purpose. Our life, our ministries reflect Jesus. Let me ask you some questions, personal questions. Are you willing to give up those things which make you look too important to people? Can you be satisfied in a place of obscurity? Perhaps even underappreciated. Do you have the guts to say to others, my choice is based on the fact and reality that Jesus is my Lord. That's why I make this choice. Can you kids and students, you have the guts to say to your peers, listen, I know others are going to do that, but I'm choosing not to do it, and let me just be honest, why? Because he's my Lord. Got the guts to do that? How about the marketplace? Got the guts to tell those you work with? I hope so. We need to be clear on those things. Because a stable life, a stable ministry is clear on that. That's our purpose, to lift up Christ as Lord. But we we also need to understand our part, and Paul goes into that. He says, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I want you to think as a Christian, who are the people who've impacted you the most in your Christian life? And if I was a gambling man, I can't gamble in church, can't gamble with it, I shouldn't, but if I was, I would venture to bet they impacted you not by their container or their their clay, but by their treasure. There was something in their life, the treasure of Christ, that's what impacted you. It wasn't the container so much, it was that treasure, right? Probably all would agree. It's something within them, and that was Christ within them. Gospel, this gospel, this magnificent glory of Christ, this this magnificent message of the gospel, Paul says it's housed in ordinary containers. That's what these clay jars were back then in this context. They're just ordinary containers. God uses ordinary people. He's housed the gospel in those jars of clay. Frail, fragile, failing, weak men and women. These men and women who've died to self, so the life of Jesus is put on display. That's who he has taken pleasure in using. When a man or woman has this conviction that what's happening to them is happening literally for Christ's sake, they can face anything. In your home, in your dorm room, in your workplace, we all need to make decisions day in and day out. Am I going to turn the page from a me-centered life to a full Jesus on display life. Some of you need to flip a page this morning. And I know it's, I know it's difficult. It seems risky. Worried about what others might think. But it's a page we all need to flip. Where Jesus is front and center. He's on display. Why? Why would God house the gospel 
in frail, weak containers of men and women. It's simple. And he says it right in verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That this change, this transformation, this reality of Christ in our life is only possible because God did it. I mean, you look in your life, and you're, if you're a Christian, you think, wow, my life before Christ was this way, and, and, and since then there's been this change, and, and you've got to admit you can't take any credit for it. I mean, if real change, God did it. I mean, if he didn't, what happened all them years up to that point that you tried to change it? Didn't work so good. But God did it. And we're tempted to elevate great churches, leaders, great ministries, great strategies, yet the real treasure is paramount and present in the hearts of inadequate servants. His purpose is carried out through jars of clay. And this truth embraced will stabilize a life and a ministry. Highland Community Church. I like it. It's a church on a highland full of ordinary folks. We talked about transparent ministry last week. Who love Jesus? What a great way to be known, huh? It's just ordinary people, but the reality of this, these people love Jesus. And, and they proclaim him. And they follow him. That's a stable ministry. To have a new start to a new season of ministry, there needs to be sure footing. It needs to be a stable ministry to endure the winds of culture and the enemy's attacks. So keep beholding Christ. Don't get sidetracked by the confusion and the times and allowing God to change you, as He will, as you continue to behold Christ. Because as you continue to behold Christ, He will change you. Commit to removing obstacles so the gospel can be clearly seen. Stay true to the message and stay true to His Word. If you do that, you'll have a stable life and a stable ministry. And never forget your person, your purpose. Never forget why you've been called to proclaim Christ as Lord personally and corporately. And also understand your part is not simply to proclaim it, but to put the life of Jesus on display as you surrender to him. In that point, there becomes credibility to your words. And when you and I live it out and never forget our purpose, guess what? We have a stable life. We have a stable ministry which is faithful to the purposes God has called us. May God empower you and I to have and foster stable life and a stable ministry. Let's pray. Lord, I, I never, I don't know, it seems like a lot of Sundays after I get done, I never feel like I did justice to what is so rich of a passage and Lord, I would just pray that whatever um, is of you for each heart here, I pray that it would sink deep by your Spirit. And whatever words were not of you, silence them. So God, there would be a great sense as we leave here that we heard from God, not from man. And so God, just by your Spirit, again, illuminate those truths. Um, might your voice supersede any others this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters individually, and I pray for this church corporately, God. You are doing amazing things in lives and hearts, in ministries. We praise you for that. 
we'd be remiss not to, God. Thank you for all you're doing. And God, I thank you for all you're going to do. And so, Lord, I, I know that this, this message comes to a people who are already doing, to a degree, the things I've talked about, God. But I pray that you would work in them and through them to a greater degree. Lord, to the degree that a community would look and see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. The community would look and see you transforming hearts and minds and homes and lives and families and marriages to the degree that they could not neglect it, they could not deny it. And Lord, I pray as you work, as you change, as you lead, that this magnificent gospel, the glory of Christ, would be communicated clearly, demonstrated powerfully, and that in all efforts, your name would be praised. I ask this in Jesus' name.